this is lunchtime on the set of a movie being made right now. The most remarkable film, too. It deals with an unwritten chapter in Chicago's, I should say, the country's popular history. The celebrated baseball scandal almost ruined the game of baseball when the Chicago White Sox, at the time considered perhaps the best team ever in organized baseball, had won the American League pennant and were playing Cincinnati Reds, overwhelming favorites, and the rest, many of you know, uh, eight members of the Chicago White Sox were bribed by gamblers and tossed the series. They threw the series, and they became known as the Black Sox. And the book based on that is called Eight Men Out, Elliot Ace. John Sayles has adapted it and directed it and made it into a film. And it's John Sayles, we're talking now during lunch. John, how would I describe you as a film? You're, you're a very good writer, by the way. His novel, Union Dues, was a strong candidate a number of years ago for the National Book Award. The short stories are great to read. Uh, they tell us a good deal about our country, aspects of the moon. Now, Eight Men Out, the film we're making, you're directing, is really almost uncovering a hidden part of popular history, isn't it? Yeah, I'd say that I'm I'm kind of inheriting something that uh, came before me, which is uh, a great job of reporting by Elliot Asnoff. Um, there had been rumors about the fix before. Um, various of the players had been indicted, um, acquitted, but then you know, kind of run out of baseball by Judge Landis anyway. Um, but Elliot Asnoff was the first guy to really track down people, compare stories dig deep and uh, he talked to a bunch of the guys who were involved both the gamblers and the players just before they died and so uh, basically the structure of the story and the legwork had been done by Elliot and uh, I read the Elliot's book and uh, which I was actually led to by a, a, a kind of prose poem by Nelson Algren in which he mentioned the book um, and just thought it was a great story. Well, we have to come to John Sayles. We'll come to the film and the story and the cast and the production in, in Indianapolis in a moment. It's you. It's your approach to filmmaking that I think different from anyone else's. You touch on things, for example, your recent film, Mate One, deals with a strike, a coal miner's strike in West Virginia in 1920. Who handles that stuff? You do. Your first film, the first thing you dealt with, The Return of the Secaucus Seven which was, to me, the most honest study in the film of what happened to the people in the 60s and late years. It's you, your particular vision. Yeah, I think one of the things that I try to do with movies is put things up there on the screen that I see in my life or that I know exist in life or that I know have existed in life that I don't see on the screen. Um, <laughs> It's not, uh, speaking of Nelson Algren, there's a whole quote of his, uh, I try to go where I'm needed. Well, I don't know if I'm needed, but I'm interested in going into areas in movies that nobody else is going into. But I see that kind of life abundantly all around me. Um, you know, you see a lot of black people in the world around you in this country. You see very few on screen. Um, you see women, you see working people, you see a lot of people around you that if you only knew this planet from movies you would think did not exist or did not exist nearly in the kind of depth and uh, diversity that they do exist. 
Well, in fact, in fact, one of your films is called Brother from Right. Another planet. Mm-hmm. Black protagonist. Right. You're doing, you know, you're uncovering an aspect of our lives that might otherwise not be uncovered, revealed. Mm-hmm. So we have, but also there's something else. Having, being involved in this film with mm-hmm. you as one of the members of the cast, I noticed something in all your films. There is no star. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's the ensemble, as I put it. Mm-hmm. I think it's your hero is the community, mm-hmm. your protagonist is the co- in this film, right? Mm-hmm. Eight men out, not just the ball players, all the way around. Yeah, it's it's it is called Eight Men Out, but it's also about it's about the players, it's about the gamblers, it's about the fans, it's about the sports writers, it's about the capitalists who own the teams. Um, each of which are parts of a community. And uh, what the players did affected that community, and that community affected what they did. Um, nobody does things in a vacuum. No, but no one does things in a vacuum. It's consistent to me that as I watch you, and I'm fascinated by your direction of the script that you adapted from, is that in all your works, the ones I've seen, uh, the return of the Secaucus Seven, more than the seven of the mm-hmm. community, in Mate One, there is no one, for, there is a young protagonist, an organizer, but it's all involved. So, mm-hmm. you know, as though it were the community, as the, mm-hmm. as, yeah, one of the main things I'm interested about in, in storytelling is the way people perceive the world and then how they act according to how they perceive the world. And I, you know, you can see 20 people sitting around a table here, and each of them has their own story, and each of them walks into the next room that we're going to shoot in, and they have a different job, and so they perceive the room differently. The sound man goes in there and he hears the bus rumbling outside, and that's going to be a problem. The, you know, director of photography goes in there and he sees that the light is less intense than it was in the morning, and so that's going to be a problem. The actors go in and they see a lot of cables on the ground and say, how am I going to move around with all those cables on the ground? You know, beyond the, your just job, then you also have your kind of personal way you see the world, your social way, whether you see the bigger picture or the smaller picture at that moment in your life. Um, so I'm interested in all that interplay of how different people see the world in the same situation. Thinking about this event, this celebrated, rather infamous event that almost ruined baseball. Mm-hmm. Some would say Babe Ruth came along and he's safe. Uh-huh. But you haven't seen now, one of the people in this film who's been honored through the years mm-hmm. to the point as one of the culprits, a key figure. That's the owner, mm-hmm. Charles Comiskey, mm-hmm. whose name is institutionalized in Chicago, mm-hmm. where that he, were it not for the manner which he treated the player at mm-hmm. the time, there might not have been their vulnerability to mm-hmm. gamblers. Yeah, I think the problem wasn't so much that he was the worst of the owners or the most skinflint of the owner, but he was an owner. You know, and, and besides owning a stadium um, and owning the rights to a ball club within a certain franchise, he owned people. And he acted as if he owned people, and there's something that's always wrong with that. Um, he could use them and dispose of them um, almost at will. 
Um, there really wasn't a whole lot a player could do back then if your owner wanted to sit you on the bench, even if you were the best player, if he wanted to underpay you, if you got hurt, you were gone, there was no pension, no insurance, no anything. So you're basically a disposable commodity that he owned and used until he didn't need you anymore. You're aware, of course, that this film will come out in 1988. Uh -huh. And uh, we're talking now about a new world in, in, mm -hmm. in this planet of athletics, mm -hmm. aren't we? Players now, just uh, some months ago was this football, professional mm -hmm. football player strike. Mm -hmm. There was a professional baseball player strike. Mm -hmm. So your film coming out at this time has contemporary Though it deals with 19, 19, 20, mm -hmm. has contemporary connotations. Oh, yeah, I think, uh, to me, the interesting thing always with the labor story is that the labor movement started with one goal in mind and uh, basically took a, a right turn and stalled. Um, the labor movement, in most cases, started not with, uh, oh, we're going to get a, a trade union in a 40-hour week, it started with the objective of workers controlling the workplace, of owning the factory, of, you know, some kind of uh, setup where the people who were down there on the floor working were also the people who had a hand in making the decision of what product would be made, when, how it would be sold, that kind of thing. And that's still sort of, you know, we're still sort of mired in the middle, you know, because at some point the unions, in order to to kind of exist, I think, in order to, to not be crushed, had to make their little separate deals with, with management and say, yes, we'll kick the Reds out of our movement, yes, we'll you know, fall short of our original goal in order to get this money and this treatment. And, and now it's sort of like they've lost that initial momentum, that initial moral force, and they're just another, too often, they're just another pressure group. Well, to me, right now, I, I couldn't think of a more dramatic and appropriate time for the film to come out than in the, the year of 88. Mm -hmm. We know the Teamsters have now fused with the AFL-CIO. We know what that means generally, far rank and file, mm -hmm. nothing. Mm -hmm. And we know that everything you say is so. Here we have a situation of good craftsmen. Mm -hmm. The best. That's mm -hmm. what we just were talking about. Who are owned and have no say, and as a because result are vulnerable to the illegitimates, mm -hmm. the gamblers. Yeah, I, I think that you have to look at uh, any sports union more as a guild than a union. Um, because only a, a kind of elite is going to belong to it, especially if it's professional athletics. Um, however, um, there has to be that consciousness that, yes, I could get hurt next year. Even though I'm at the top now, I could be facing this. Just because I make a half a million a year doesn't mean everybody else who's going to be my teammates is. And I'm afraid that uh, with all the media attention, with all the, the pressure to... Uh, succeed, it's very difficult to have any feeling of solidarity when, in fact, the guy who's your teammate this year may be your opponent the next year, when, in fact, um, you're competing with guys on the same team for the same position. It's a very, very difficult thing to pull off. You know, it's interesting. It's a movie. I'm going to come to you in movies in a moment, mm -hmm. in contrast to your work as a writer, different mm -hmm. channels, as a writer for print, that many of the young, most moviegoers are young. Mm -hmm. and as you know, many of them haven't the vaguest idea mm -hmm. of, there's no sense of past, certain not of mm -hmm. labor past. So, even though this doesn't deal with the union, it deals mm -hmm. with players who are completely at the mercy mm -hmm. of the owner. 
and they see that. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they... Yeah, I think you have to, to figure that in always with, with any movie that's a period movie or, or even outside of the experience of most of the moviegoers. And you have to write that into the screenplay. You have to explain some things or if not explain them, create the environment so you understand, well, maybe this is why the people act this way, you know. So maybe you take 10 or 15 minutes at the beginning of the movie to let people get used to the world of that movie. And the world of this movie is the world of 1919. In 1920, which is very different in some ways than our world today, and very alike to our world today. And this film is more than nostalgic. This mm -hmm. is the point. It's, more, it, it's period piece, and we're immediately mm -hmm. thrown into 1919, mm -hmm. 1920, and you see it in mm -hmm. the set, in the feel, and everything, mm -hmm. in, the, in the language. At the same time, it is 1988, and its mm -hmm. implications. Oh yeah. I to me, a lot of what the movie is about is how people become corrupted, how they corrupt each other, how, uh, you know, for instance, if you think of police corruption, I don't think any kids go through police academy saying, in five years, I'm going to be shaking down drug dealers and then selling the dope on the streets. That does happen to some police officers within five years of going on the job. And maybe the first day it's, you know, oh, you've got to look the other way for this to get an informant to talk to you. Maybe the next day it's seeing somebody who you've got a good collar on walk free in the streets because they have political connections. And maybe in a year you're kind of pretty disgusted by, the, you know, the world that you're, you're thrown into. And, and five years later, maybe you're the exact person that you used to want to put in jail. So we are dealing with. This is more than a public company with young actors who are baseball players at the mm -hmm. same time. It's rather unique. Mm -hmm. that, this is more, it's a great baseball, but far more than that. Mm -hmm. It's a study of uh, human, human and nature and corruptibility. And, corruptibility and, and also how it, it, it kind of, people lose something that's, I don't want to say pure, but something that's ideal. You know, that kind of natural talent. It's what the, the book of the natural was about, what Bernard Melamud's book was about, was about how somebody with this natural talent is led away from it and loses it through the hype, through the, the celebrity, the money, the this, that, that. And the other thing, what's pure and, and kind of natural about him is, is covered over, is lost. And throughout, there's a feeling as an undercard of this film throughout. These are young American heroes mm -hmm. of their generally working class mm -hmm. families. We know that. Right. They were miners' kids or right. farmers' kids <coughs> in the old days. Mm -hmm. Weather beaten scenes. But the heroes, suddenly the heroes tarnish. Mm -hmm. And something happens to almost uh, an innocence. It's also an end of innocence as well. I, I think also 1919 and 1920 was an era when mass media was just starting you know radio was just just starting crystal sets that's what people listened to in 1919 um these guys were getting more attention than they'd gotten in their lives and almost more attention than anybody gotten in their lives they were like Lindbergh, you know they were that celebrated and that was a very difficult thing to you know it's a very american thing i think that kind of celebrity very difficult thing to to manage and a very difficult thing to to act like a hero with that kind of public scrutiny think of politicians think of if you ever smoke dope all of a sudden now you can't become a supreme court justice you know how can you go through your 20s worrying about you know could i be a supreme court justice so a celebrity but also with a certain kind of 
flexibility going forward. Mm -hmm. It's the choice of a baseball commissioner, mm -hmm. federal judge, not too great a federal judge. There is Council Mountain yeah. and righteousness. Oh yeah, it's definitely a story that illustrates once again the, that uh, if you're going to do crime, do it on a large scale. You know, be, be a be a businessman who cheats rather than a penny in a gambler who cheats or a, a ball player who takes a couple bucks. And there are many telling moments. Anyway, there's one where you, by the way, you yourself are playing the role which point this out. One of the best of American writers, Ring Lark. Mm -hmm. His world was baseball, and after mm -hmm. that, he expanded beyond the diamond. He was mm -hmm. covering. And at one moment where Ring Lardner, by the way, you bear a remarkable resemblance uh -huh. to young Ring Lardner. This is me stunning. Mm -hmm. But there's a moment when the, the owner, Comiskey, mm -hmm. after the players have been kicked out of baseball, eight players mm -hmm. ride. Oh, one was, now we have to come to that one player in a moment. Right. He just didn't inform us, mm -hmm. comments, Buck Weaver. Right. But on the stairway stand the owners, mm -hmm. the presidents of both leagues, and Commission of Landis, new commission. Mm -hmm. and, and they're going to clean out all the corruption. And mm -hmm. Ring Lardner says, as you, that, uh, yeah, you should start with the birds on the platform. Um, and that was it was basically that way then. And I think there's an awful lot of situations when it's that way now, which is that the the kind of rank and file foot soldiers of crime and corruption are the ones who do the time. And the big cheeses may pay a fine now and then, uh, may get some bad publicity now and then, but usually they can even buy their way out of that. I should point out that this particular conversation took place during the making of the movie in Indianapolis, during lunch, as you can gather from the sound of the crowd in the background. And it stopped because John Sayles had to go back to work and to pick up with the film. Now it's several months later, the film is completed, John, thinking now, it's great seeing you again. Uh -huh. It's all over, and yeah. now we got to wait. But the film is done. Thoughts, you know, several months after this conversation, you said a number of things that are quite uh -huh. provocative. Yeah, I think one thing that now that I've I've finished the editing of the film and put it all together, uh, one thing I started realizing more and more that I think I forgot a little bit during the the making of it was how much during the writing and now seeing the film, it's about growing up and not just about the characters growing up because certainly in the world of baseball, just like in the world of show business, you can stay a child for much longer than you get to in the real world um, and, and can have a very rude awakening when your career as a ball player or whatever ends, but also how the country was growing up. That if you think of a, of a country as a person, the United States was in this kind of childhood, and I think World War One. I, I think the guys coming back, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris, the immigration that happened between 1900 and 1915, uh, the ideas that came in with those immigrants um, were forcing the country to grow up. The sports writers didn't want that to happen. They were not investigative journalists. They were still writing the same old purple prose about our blue-eyed boys on the green grass. Um, the people who started the Volstead Act didn't want us to grow up. They were trying to keep people from drinking. Uh, the people doing the Palmer raids certainly didn't want us to grow up politically. They were deporting people who were bringing any new ideas in. 
So there was at, at the same time there was this incredible push to, to to grow up, to become more sophisticated, to become more European. There was the conservative counter push to put a lid on things, deport those people, you know, have prohibition set in, uh, you know, counteract the fact that people, you know, working people can now own a car and be mobile and 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 choke off some of that social mobility that people were excited about. And I think one of the things that happened with the Black Sox scandal is it forced the nation to grow up in a certain way. And unfortunately, in that kind of next step, which is a kind of cynical adolescence, everything's fixed. You know, when your your eyes first open and you realize the fairy tales of your youth are not all true, you can become that very cynical kind of adolescent. And and what came next was the Capone era, you know, which was not only in Chicago. You know, you've just, I think, really offered what this film is about. You've just given us the subtext mm -hmm. of this film. End of Innocence, I said at the beginning, mm -hmm. and you've expanded on that, of course, and is, that is end of childhood, mm -hmm. end of a sort of what we thought was an Eden, mm -hmm. a sort of, but kicked out. And a, and a kind of self-imposed one, because certainly the yeah. sports writers were out there drinking and carousing yeah. with the ballplayers and not writing about you it. You just raised some, the sports writers, and this may include Ring Lardner too, mm -hmm. certainly the guy that I was playing, Hugh Fullerton, they were hurt by this mm -hmm. thing. When you, Ring Lardner, Ring Lardner sings, I'm forever blowing ball games. He's furious at these guys because he too was something, a self-imposed innocent. Certainly mm -hmm. the other writers were. Mm -hmm. Today some of the sports writers, the younger ones, do question. Mm -hmm. But they were, they weren't owned, but they were certainly not questioning authority. No, they, they were fans part of the time. Part of the time they were flax. You know, they yeah. were you know, well, well fed at Comiskey's kind of watering hole, and and he certainly spent more money keeping the public and the press happy than he did on the players. See, one of the things that you do, and based on Elliot Asinoff's novel, he did, and you do in this film so beautifully, is something that Nelson Algren would have liked very much. Because one of the lines, and I'll paraphrase badly, mm -hmm. in one of his introductions to Chicago City on the Make, is how come it's a small boy, one chapter is a small boy's memory disillusioned. Mm -hmm called the silver-colored yesterday, the sock, this kid Sox fan on the block. Name I hear your name, Swede Risberg, he says, because his name was Algren, see? Mm -hmm. And then this guy, Swede Risberg, was one of them. Mm -hmm. One of them. Right. He, he, they were the reds of that day, is the right. way he put it. Yeah. But it's something more. It's, how come the guy up there is never put down in the dock? Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's what your film does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, Comiskey is worth a, a film of his own because there were a lot of things that were great about him. He was a he was a tough ball player. He kind of invented half the ways that the game is played. Well, he revolutionized playing first base. Right, he played off the bag oh, for the first okay. time. He brought the infield in. He was a player rep at one time, um, and then when he became an owner, he was a player rep. Yeah, isn't yeah. that ironic? And and at one time uh, wanted to break the the you know the kind of bondage that the owners had, but the minute he became an owner, he became a real 18th century self-made yeah. capitalist and didn't want to give up one penny if he didn't have to. But the other thing, of course, many things, many dimensions to the film, is capturing that time mm -hmm. visually too, mm -hmm. but capturing the your details too. We'll come to the matter of 
you're directing the young players, the actors who mm -hmm. are players. Well, I say that now. The first time I know which actors, young actors, are good ball players. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't Gary Cooper doing Lou Gehrig or William Bendix doing Babe Ruth. Right. Yeah, we, we definitely tried to get guys who could play, who were also good actors. But um, we didn't want to use doubles in the film. And so the guys do all their own throwing, all their own hitting. Um, we had Ken Berry, who used to play here in Chicago for the White Sox, do a little training camp with the guys and, and hone the skills that they would have to do on camera. And that was a, a great help, that the guys were really into the baseball. They were good at it. And also, I, I had to have them play in character. So Buck Weaver was a guy who was not a natural ball player, but a kind of Pete Rose, dig it out of the dirt and get it over to first somehow kind of ball player. And I said to John Cusack, it never has to look that smooth. That's the but young just, actor who did it. Yeah, j just get it over there. You know, I don't care if there's a handful of dirt with it. Um, but you also used a quite marvelous mime, Bill Irwin, right. as Eddie Collins, because Irwin, you know, is a graceful mover. Right. Collins, of course, was a, a superb... Yeah, known as, as a kind of balletic <coughs> infielder. You know, uh, D.B. Sweeney, who plays uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson, a very graceful player, you know, long strides. Now, the thing is, he used this kid, D.B. Sweeney, who actually was a ball player right, at the beginning. Right, right. And D.B. learned how to bat left-handed and had not yeah. before and was able to hit the wall left-handed. So we're using, you are, that is not using, but urging the actual actors to be the ball players. And mm -hmm. you did it again and again and again, mm -hmm. as the gag on the old singer goes, until yeah. you get it right. Yeah. Another thing that I, I, I did with them in talking about setting the period and the world of that day, I showed them some uh, Jimmy Cagney movies. And uh, I could have gone earlier, except there weren't talkies until about 27 and 28. And Cagney often talked about how his tough guys were based on the guys on his block when he was a kid. He was a kid in 1920. And there's a lack of self-consciousness. There's a, a cockiness and self-confidence to those guys. There's not a lot of the, the later school of James Dean and Marlon Brando reflection before you said something. And if you read the interviews with the ball players of the day, they're the same kind of guys. It's a funny thing. I, I, I interviewed Cagney for Esquire, and it's pretty old by then, uh -huh. forgetting certain. But one thing he remembered, he said, just this is adding to your point mm -hmm. about a spontaneity among Tokyo movies. I said, how'd that phrase come into being? What do you say? What do you know? Uh -huh. what do you, I don't know. He said, just came when it came. He says, I said to, to the sky, what do you say? What do you know? That's yeah. what you're talking about. That's yeah, the, and a rhythm to it. Yeah. Um, I think because there wasn't mass media, um, certainly the ballplayers didn't have to worry about seeing their mistakes to a journalist on a hundred yeah. different stations tomorrow. It was in one lousy paper, and it was forgotten. You see, John Sayles, what you do is... Is something no other film director does. You tackle themes no one, the others talk about, but never do. Oh, maybe someday I'll do it if I have enough dough to defy whoever it is I defy. You do it, and who would do a nineteen a feature film a nineteen twenty minor strike? Who would do the the idea of Small Planet? The visible? who would do? Uh, who would do? It's a caucus seven. If I, I may say this, this is my editorial comment. I saw that and I saw the big chill. And the big chill, I know that cost 20. I won't even think of terms of money. I imagine 20 times more than whatever yours cost. There's no comparison between which I believe and which I did. I didn't for a moment believe 
the people in the big chill had a damn thing to do with the 60s. Not for a single moment that I believe them. In the case of Caucus 7, I saw the awkwardness of some moment there. I knew mm. this is real. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about. You're not afraid to tackle an actuality mm-hmm. as it is, as a feature film with imagination, not mm-hmm. a documentary, yeah. but to have that feel of... Yeah. I think one of the difficulties in why movies lag behind fiction in that way is because there's money involved. And just like the story of the Black Sox, the minute you take anything and you involve money in it, you're dealing with a lot of other things. You're dealing with you know, finance, you're dealing with politics, you're dealing with society. Um, you know, it's a mass media thing, whereas fiction writing is not yeah. really. You know, just as we're nearing the end of this hour, I know there's much more you have mm-hmm. to say, but you and I both have several other places mm-hmm. to go to, but the, the uh, it's a dealing with money. We're talking about money and gambling. And today, of course, money and uh, sports need be mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, then was a pittance compared to today's. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, there was relatively big money involved. Mm-hmm. And there was threat. There was danger of violence. Indeed, there was, mm-hmm. that was there throughout, wasn't it? Yeah, I think one of the reasons that it took the story so long to come out is that some of the players were literally afraid, I'm going to get rubbed out if I talk. Yeah. Uh-huh. And now we're talking of innocence again. A lot of these were country boys. Yeah. Even the tough guy, the, the guy of the conspiracy, the first baseman, Chick, Chick Gandel, yeah. he was the toughest of the tough. Mm-hmm. Even he was a baby in the He was a boilermaker from, like, hmm? from Nevada yeah. or something. You know, he worked in factories and, yeah. and played a little ball. And, and he thought he was a sport and a wise guy. Yeah. And he was just so far over his head. It, it just couldn't work. I suppose it's come to the two most poignant figures in the book of the two of the eight ball players would be, of course, Shoeless Joe Jackson, mm-hmm. who was illiterate, mm-hmm. really, but who was the greatest. Now, who couldn't play, as Nelson put down when the organ, he couldn't play bad baseball even when he tried. Uh-huh. Hit 375. And yeah. Buck Weaver, who did not take part in it, who mm-hmm. played as well as he could, but who knew and did not inform on his friends. On his friends. On his, 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 his world. I mean, there wasn't another world for Buck Weaver to live in except the one with those players. Um, And that's that's some of the the difficulty of, of, you know, getting across to people now. There wasn't that media world. There wasn't, you know, all the money to have a totally different life. And there was a loyalty to those guys because you were going to stay in that club forever probably. Didn't he use—you have him talking to the kids, they're a moving thing. Some when you hit the ball well, a sweet side or something, mm-hmm. it's as though you will live forever. Yeah, coming back to the innocence again. Yeah, I think one of you know you look at these guys and they were kids. You know, even the ones who were thirty-seven years old were kids. And I think when you're a kid, you do things and you don't know what the consequences are. You don't know that you have to live with that for the rest of your life. You know, we see uh, what's his name, uh, Quail here. You know, and. At one point, he decided, I'm sure, look, I'm not that crazy about this war, certainly not enough to get killed in it, and he doesn't want to own up to that now, but he just decided, well, maybe if I can get into the National Guard, I can do the service, my old man won't be pissed at me, and, you know, I'll get out of it. And he did that, and now it's coming back to haunt him. Certainly other people do much heavier things than that, but when you're a kid, you don't realize uh, you're going to live with it, and you're going to live with yourself, you know, and I think that's what hurt you know, the, the the players who really cared the most, you know, Eddie Seacott had to live with that 
His, his wife and family looked him in the eye and said, why didn't you tell us about this? Why did you do this? The money wasn't that important. And he just didn't know that until it had, had already been too late. And of course it deals with respectables, quote unquote, mm-hmm. who are untouched by it, you see. Mm-hmm. That's it. These are like a Tom and Daisy Buchanan in The Great Gatsby. They casually do this is Comiskey. Mm-hmm. Anyway, not so casually do something and just leave ruined creatures in the wake of what they did. Go on else, as though it never right. they never nothing to do with it. Somebody else cleans up the yeah. mess. Someone and, cleans and up and the takes mess the, rap. the phrase yeah. in Gatsby. Yeah. Well that's that's uh, unfortunately that's that's kind of that's one of the awakenings to the real world that these players have. Well that's what this film, Eight Man Out, as you can gather, is about partly Mm-hmm. Because as see, it's more than about baseball. It's precisely what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And it's the work. It's the hallmark of a, I think, a fantastic uh, a man of imagination. Has been a film director and a writer, John Sayles. And any postscript before we take off? Um, no, just that I, I, I hope people get to see the film and and um, and think about it. You know, and and. Think about what you would do in that situation, because it's not, you know, Elliot Asanoff has said, when I started to write the book, I thought the guys were bums, period. And then when he started getting into it, he started to see there are a lot of different sides to this and, and a lot of different people you can be sympathetic with and understand. And I, I think that's some of what the experience of seeing the movie is about. John Sales. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>